Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God be praised. What a privilege it is to be with my brothers and sisters here at the First Baptist Church of Pelham, and especially to be with my son, Dr. Davin Watkins. You certainly know that God has blessed him in a tremendous way to be a preacher in the first magnitude. That's a fact. He stands in our nation and stands alongside some of the tallest oaks in the Baptist and non-denominational forest. And not does, he does more than just hold his own. He is applauded and appreciated because he's a preacher. And a preacher who preaches the uncompromising word of God. I'm grateful to God for our journey. I'm grateful to God for what God has done. I'm grateful to be alive to see the marriage between First Baptist and Dr. Davin Watkins. I also applaud the great work of Dr. Mike Shaw for over three decades. He has stood here and has poured out his life and has preached the word. And now Dr. Watkins stands upon his shoulders and understands that, and this is a wonderful continuation. I love his wife very much, Sister Mary Shaw, and her fidelity, her faith, and the electric spirit that's in this church. It's authentic. Um, I'm looking at you now, but uh, give it five more years, and it's as beautiful as you look now, you will look nothing like uh, you will look then. Believe me, God is doing things in this church that's radical. I mean, redemptively radical and revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And so thank you so much, Son, for letting me uh, stand where I know the gospel is being preached here. It's a real joy. I want to continue my, um, my thought from this morning. I mind you, in 50 years, I've never finished a sermon. That's a fact. Um, but uh, I'm going to just um, pick up where I left. I preached this morning from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. You may turn there. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And I dealt with verses 1 through 12a under the rubric or under the um, theme or topic of the strength of weakness, the strength of weakness. I'm going to read 2 Chronicles chapter 20, start with verse 12b and read through 26. I want to talk about God on the stage. God on the stage. Hear these words from 2 Chronicles, Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12b through 26. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Beniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, 
but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeriel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshipped before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Korthites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with very loud voice. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Decoya. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed the men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. The men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went on to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, where they praised the Lord. This is why they call the valley of Barakah to this day. You may be seated. The Roman poet Horace once said, never bring a God to the stage unless the problem is one that deserves a God to solve. Never bring a God to the stage unless the problem is one that deserves a God to solve it. I'm Trinitarian. I want to say that again. Never bring a God to the stage unless the problem is one that deserves a God to solve it. Let me Christianize that. Only God should be brought to the stage because only he is able to solve any problem. Let me lyricalize that. Have you any rivers that you think are uncrossable? Do you have any mountains that you cannot tunnel through? God specializes in things that seem to be impossible. And he will do what no other power can do. Have you ever been on your bed of affliction and the doctor has done all that he can or she can do? God specializes in healing all manner of diseases. 
And he will do what no other doctor can do. Because God, as I said this morning, wants to create a situation for us so that he calls attention to his initial interest, which is not to make us strong, but rather to bring us to a state of weakness so that we can recognize that our strength can only be found in him. It's the strength of weakness. And what a paradox that is. That when we are strong, we really are weak. And when we are weak, then we discover that our strength is only found in him. It's a paradox. A paradox occurs when two mutually exclusive statements meet at the intersection of apparent, apparent, apparent contradiction only to produce truth. It is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. I glory, I boast in my weaknesses, in my hindrances, in my insults, in my persecutions, in my difficulties. For when I am weak, that is when I am strong. And when I am strong in my own estimation, that really is when I am weak. And Jehoshaphat has a problem that he cannot solve. Verse 1 of this chapter, three nations, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Mayanites, who are the Edomites, family members, are trying to make him and his country, his nation, extinct. Three against one, family members. And Jehoshaphat gets word of it because God enables him to find out what is the secret to these Ammonites, Moabites, and Edomites, but is known by God. And Jehoshaphat, in verse 3, is alarmed. He's fearful. He calls for a national day of prayer and fasting, verse 4. And verse 5, praise a prayer that is a trifold prayer. It, it is a prayer that has a triple trajectory. The prayers prayed to God. The first one revolves around God's sovereignty. Verse 5. Oh God, are you not the God who rules in heaven? All power and all might are in your hand and no one can withstand you? Are you not that God? Yes. That's the obvious answer. It is that God is sovereign and God is in control and that God permits some things in order to promote others. And like Joseph, you may be sent down to Egypt, betrayed by your brothers, and it will take you a long time before you understand in Genesis 44 and 45, the Lord sent me to Egypt. Mm. I thought I was put there because of the betrayal of my brothers. No, Joseph, you were sent there so that you might get an audience with the Pharaoh and inform him that there were going to be seven years of harvest. And during those seven years of harvest, you need to store up grain because those seven years of harvest will be followed by seven years of famine. And if you store up grain during the seven years of harvest, when the famine comes, your people, the Egyptians, will have a place to get grain. And not only your people, but your own brothers will come down there. 
if it wasn't for the grain that you had, they would starve to death because their land was also affected by the famine. And because they had a place to get grain, that meant that they didn't starve to death, which ultimately meant that Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, did not starve. Because if Jacob would have died out, there would have been no Boaz. And if there was no Boaz, there would have been no Obed. And if there was no Obed, there would have been no Jesse. And if there's no Jesse, there would have been no David. And if there had been no David, there would have been no Jesus. And therefore, Joseph, after all those years, can make this statement in Genesis 50 and 20. What you brothers meant unto me for evil, God meant it unto me for good. God's delays are not God's denials. And he has a purpose when he permits certain things to take place in our lives because he is sovereign. But not only does Jehoshaphat pray a prayer that revolves around the sovereignty of God, Jehoshaphat prays a prayer that revolves around God's history in terms of his involvement in the history of the people of Judah. And in verse number 6 and 7, he says in praying, Are you not the God who has evicted these seven Canaanite nations so that you can move in your own people because you promised to the descendants of Abraham that you were going to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. So you gave these seven Canaanite nations an eviction notice and you moved us in. And now that famine and pestilence and peril and sword have confronted us, we know that if we stand in this courtyard before this temple and we pray that you will not only hear, but you will answer our prayer. Is this not the God who's been involved in our history? Yes, God is involved in our history because our history is really his story. And when you have past experience with God, he gives you present confidence to trust that the God who has brought me safe thus far is the God who will lead me on. But then in verses 8 through 11b and up to 12a, here is the turn. You see it in verse number 10 where Jehoshaphat says, Now, Lord, these three nations, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, they are attempting to make us an extinct people. When we came out of Egypt, and we were going through the wilderness on our way to the promised land, these three nations wanted to fight us. They tried to be an obstruction to keep us from getting into the promised land. And when we were going to militarily retaliate, you said, no, these are your relatives. Ammon and Moab are the sons of Lot, and Lot is the nephew of Abraham, and Edom is the twin brother of Jacob. Those are your relatives. You cannot fight them. But look now, verse 10, how they are repaying us. They are trying to destroy us. Will you not, 12a, will you not judge them? It is a prayer that revolves around the idea of divine fairness, the idea of divine equity, and God will judge them. But Jehoshaphat understands that this is not his battle. It's God's battle. And therefore, God judges by covenantal conduct. Uh, he carries his uh, mandates out by the covenant that he has bound himself to. Because God is not a contractual God. It is not, you do 50% and God says, I'll do 50%. If you don't do your 50%, then I 
will not do mine. Therefore, the contract is annulled and void. No, God says, I'm a covenantal God. I will do 100%. If you are unfaithful, I'm still faithful. If you are not dutiful, I'm still dutiful. And therefore, these nations are threatening the existence of Judah. It's out of Judah. That's exactly what Moses is saying in uh, Genesis 49 and 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor lawgiver from between his feet till Shiloh come. Shiloh, peace, has to come out of Judah. Jesus will come out of Judah. And therefore, these three nations are threatening the promise of God. And God takes it personal. I cannot let you wipe them out. Therefore, I must step in because I will conduct myself by covenantal conduct. 12b, there begins three acknowledgments. Three nations are against Judah, and Jehoshaphat makes three acknowledgments. The first one in 12b, he says, we have no might, impotence, weakness, powerlessness, and it sounds ridiculous. We have no might. We visited this morning in 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verse number 14 through 18, that Joshua had a, whole lot of, had a whole lot of might. He had, in verse 14, 300,000 soldiers. In verse 15, 280,000 soldiers. Verse 16, 200,000 soldiers. Verse 17, 200,000 soldiers. Verse 18, 180,000 soldiers. That's 1,160,000 soldiers. Verse 19, not counting the soldiers in the fortified cities. And now he says... We have no might. He says that to God. But he understood that the might that he really needed had nothing to do with chariots and swords and cavalrymen. We have no might against this army. We need might that's beyond bombs, beyond airplanes, beyond ships. We need the might and the power of God's. I tell you, it doesn't make any difference what you have. Without God, you have no might. Financially, you can be a stoops. Educationally, you can be a genius. Health-wise, you can look like the chairman of the board of health because you look so clean and you just got a clean bill of health. But without God, you have absolutely no might because everything you have is temporary. Your strength can be gone just like that. Your relationship could suffer a rift just like that. Your job could be gone just like that. But there's one thing that cannot be garnished. There's one thing that cannot be taken away from me. Take away my title. Take away the car. Take away my position. Take away my health. Take away all that. I have a relationship that cannot be canceled nor can be annulled. I have a relationship that cannot suffer any kind of possible non-existence. It's because I am in him and he is in me. And therefore, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. We have no might. We're impotent, Jehoshaphat says. 12C. We don't know what to do. Ignorance, not stupidity. Ignorance means you just don't know. Hmm. Has there ever come a time in your life when you didn't know what to do? And what do you do when you don't know what to do?
ignorance at life's crossroads and you don't know which way to turn. Mm. Verse 12d, enlighten me. But our eyes are upon you. That's the word of Zora Neale Hurston, the African-American novel writer and great uh, pioneer for African-American women particularly. She writes this great folk story. Their eyes were watching God. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dear in light of his glory and grace. It is impotence. We have no might. That's where Elisha is in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15, down in Dothan. And his servant comes out of the house and in verse 15 asks this question. Alas, master, what shall we do? Mm. Because he says and sees the Syrian soldiers surrounding the hillsides. And it's just two of them and both of them are weaponless. We have no might. God wants to get you to the place, brothers and sisters, and get me to the place, brothers and sisters, where we recognize, as George Matheson would say, Lord, make me a captive and I shall be free. Here it is. Take away my sword and I shall conquer and be. Take away my sword and I shall conquer and be. That is, I conquer when I'm swordless. Because if I have a sword, I might attribute the victory to my own agility and strategy. But if I conquer without a sword, then I know that it's God that's doing it. We are trying to take responsibility for too much. I need to declare my impotence. I am weak. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Pilgrim through this barren land. I'm weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy power for hand. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. We have to get past all of these externalities and say to God, I'm weak, I'm helpless. And if you don't give me power to get through this, I will fail. Tell him you are weak. Well, I've got an advanced degree. You're just a person who has an advanced degree and you're weak. Well, I've got a large bank account. You're just a large, uh, rich person holding a bank account who's weak. Well, I'm cute and I'm handsome. You're just cute and handsome and you're weak. God knows we're weak. Impotence. But also ignorance. Here is Elisha, servant coming out of Dotham in 2 Kings chapter 6. And he says, alas, master, what shall we do? God is waiting on us to get ignorant enough, ignorant enough to admit that he's the only one who has the wisdom to guide us throughout life. We're not ignorant enough. And I don't mean stupid. We know too much. We have graduated cum laude, magna cum laude, summa cum laude, when all of us really have graduated. Thank you, laude. That's really what has happened. God has brought us through. We know too much. We need to be like Ezekiel, who was asked in the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse number three. Son of man, can these bones live? And you know what Ezekiel says? Lord God, you know, which means I don't know. Have you got to the place where you can say, I don't know. 
And God says, now you're exactly where I wanted you to be. You don't know, but I know. Uh, one of our students, Tal Prince, in the past days, he and his wife adopted a little child. The little child wanted to sleep with them. And they allowed the, the baby to sleep with them for a while. And then finally, Tal said, it's time for the baby to sleep in her own room. Oh, the baby cried, and Teresa wanted to get up and uh, get the baby and put, them between, put the baby between them. But no, 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 no. She said, Tal said, let's just keep the door cracked and let the baby cry uh, as long as the baby is all right so that we can look through the crack and see the baby, even though the baby doesn't see us. Because it's not really important whether you see God. What's important is that God sees you. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. But the scaffold sways the future. And behind the dim unknown standeth God in the shadows, keeping watch above his own. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. We need to declare our ignorance today. We don't know. Put eyes upon you. Enlightenment. And Elisha says to his servant, who is not named, in verse 17 of 2 Kings chapter 6, Lord, open his eyes. And when this servant's eyes were open, he saw what he didn't see before. He saw angelic beings surrounding the hillside, chariots of fire, ready to come down and swoop down upon the Syrians and defeat them. For Elisha says, those who are for us are greater than those who are against us. I don't think we understand that we have angelic beings. That's around. I know we don't talk much about angels anymore, but hear me when I tell you. When Hebrew writer tells us in chapter 1 that angels are God's ministering spirits to those who are heirs of salvation, there have been places that we would not have come through safely had it not been for an angel that God dispatched to serve as a blockade to keep danger from claiming us. Well, he acknowledges his impotence, his ignorance, and then expresses that he needs enlightenment. Open my eyes that I may see. Open our eyes that we may see. Verse number 13, the Bible says, in light of this threat from this trifold confederacy of the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites, that the men, the wives, their children, and their little ones come down to the national day of prayer and fasting right in front of the temple to ask God to protect them and to intervene for them. The men, then their wives, then the children, and then the little ones. The men, not the women, no, but the men. Now, I, there's no hierarchy in God's sight between men and women. We are told that in Galatians 3 and 28, that in Christ there's neither male nor female, bond nor free, Jew nor Gentile. I understand. But women are waiting for men to take their places, to stand up. No, we don't send our children to church. We bring them. We sit together. We worship together. And the men need to stand up. Women are waiting for men. Every woman who really wants a man, wants someone uh, other than somebody who can put on a pair of pants. Every woman wants a real man of great responsibility who will lead his family in the way 
of God. They come down there. And the Bible says in verse 14 that the spirit of God comes upon Jehaziel. Jehaziel is one of the descendants of Asaph. And Asaph was the minister of music for David. And the spirit comes on him. Jehaziel is supposed to be and is a musical uh, talent. He has musicological experience. He's a minister of music. But now he becomes a minister of the word because the spirit comes upon him. And in verse 15, he will say, thus saith the Lord. Wow. Because the ministry of music and the ministry of the word are inextricably connected. I think that everybody who sings in the choir ought to be a Bible student so that you know what you're singing about and why you're singing about it. I like it when people take it, run up the wall in the church. I think that's great. But I want a person when they come down from the wall to be able to tell me why they ran up the wall. In other words, worship is an informed matter. God never told me to take and dislocate my head from my body and take and deposit it in the vestibule and then come here and worship mindlessly. We are intelligent people. And the word of God is written by the spirit of God so that the word and the and worship come together and we worship God in spirit, John 4 and 24, and in truth. One of the things about us is that we are, we are scarcely becoming more, we're rapidly becoming more and more afraid of the spirit. There's a lot of churches that want to be word churches, but they don't want to be spirit churches. So just give me the word, not spirit. Mm-mm. But if you have the word, but not the spirit, if that's possible, then you become dull, you become dry. But if you have the spirit without the word, then you are blind and uninformed. And God wants you to have an informed mind and an inspired spirit so that you come to church and you don't come to church to get full you come to church because you're already full you've been praying on monday shouting on tuesday reading the bible on wednesday you've been fasting on thursday you've been giving god glory on friday and you've been standing up and thanking god for what he's done on saturday and on sunday morning you come here you're already full and i i take an overflow on dr watkins he overflows on me and all of us overflow on each other and we flood this place because we don't come here in order to get set on fire we already got fire shut up at our bone. And so we don't come here to be spectators. We come here to be participators. The Lord has been uh, so good to us. We're standing on tiptoe anticipation and worship becomes something where we're not waiting for something to happen. We are standing there because something has already happened. The Spirit of God wants to move in our midst. And don't worry about fanaticism because it's much easier to cool off a fanatic than to warm up a corpse. Why don't you just give yourself to the spirit of God? Well, you know, I'm not very emotional. I don't get emotional. I don't believe in emotional unless Auburn is playing, unless Alabama is playing. I'll take and drive down there and spend $100 to get in. I'll spend $50 to park and I'll spend $80 to eat. I'm out $300 and then it takes me two hours to get out of traffic and another hour and a half to get home and they may not even win. But when you come to church on Sunday morning, the Lord has already won. He's woke you up this morning. He started showing your way. He's saved your soul. He's kept your family. And when I come here, I come here to celebrate. I come here to praise the Lord. And here Jehaziel, the Spirit of God comes upon him. And he says, as a minister of music, 
Jehaziel says to Joseph at, Thus saith the Lord. Mm. In other words, this is what God's word says. You can't say, thus saith the Lord, unless you know what saith the Lord. And to find out what saith the Lord, got to get in the book. Everybody, that's how mama would say, everybody. Everybody ought to be in the book. And I don't mean just for small groups and cell groups. I'm talking about during the week so that when you come to church, the preacher preaches, he will preach in such a way that it will resonate with what God has been talking to you about doing that week. Thus saith the Lord, Jehoshaphat and all Jerusalem and Judah, fear not. What? But we have three nations against us. Fear not. You never say that unless you're fearful. I'm told that there are 365 fear knots in the Bible. If there are 365 fear knots in the Bible, that's a fear knot for every day of the year. Fear not. The very first fear knot was found, uh, is found rather, in Genesis chapter 15, verse number one, where God says to Abraham, or Abram in this time, non-covenantal name, Abram, fear not, for I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Fear not. In other words, I'm your shield. That means I got your front. I'm your shield. Nothing can get to you unless I move over. And if I permit it, then I've got a purpose to promote. So I got you front. Fear not, Abraham. But there's a fear not in Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shallow death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff comes to me. And it closes with verse 6 by saying, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Follow me. Follow after me. All the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I know that in my past, in my path, that which lies behind me, many mistakes, sin, rebellion, disobedience, all that. And when I stand before God, I will probably realize that in my past, there's stuff that I don't want to look at. But as he tells me to look behind me, I'll look and the pathway is completely guiltless and sinless and shameless and blameless and I wonder what happened to all my stuff all the mess and I can hear him saying didn't I tell you goodness and mercy would follow after you picking up after you cleaning up after you so that you stand dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before his throne do you understand that justification really means that God is cleaning up picking up after you so that there's nothing in your life that God will look at and say you are blameful. It's an amazing thing that God looks at us and sees us already glorified. He saw that before he saved us and knew that we would be a part of his glorified bride. Thus saith the Lord. And then Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. Here is John who sees the glorified Christ and he bows, falls down on his face as if dead. And Jesus says to him, John, fear not, for I'm he who was dead, but I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and hell. Mm. I got the keys. Which means if God has your back and if God's got your front and then God has the keys, you and I have absolutely nothing to fear. Fear not because of this vast army. Verse 15. For the battle is not yours, but God's. 
Oh, if I, if I, if I could just remind myself of my ministry of negation, I would know who I am by knowing who I am not. John the Baptist knew who he was by saying, I'm not, I'm not the bridegroom, I'm the best man. I'm not the Christ, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm not one who is going to increase, I'm one who's going to decrease. And when you understand that the battle is God's and it's not yours, then you and I will take our hands off of it and let God handle it. God says to Jaziel to say to Jehoshaphat and the people of Jerusalem and Jerusalem uh, and Judah, fear not because the battle is God's. It's not yours. And tomorrow you're going to go up and go across the paths of Ziz. You ought to tell the people to stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Oh, they're to show up for battle. And they're to dress up. But all they're going to do is be onlookers because they will not even get their uniform dirty. They are to watch God play the game. They are to watch God win the victory. Well, in verses 18 and 19, the text says that Jehoshaphat took and bowed toward the earth in worship. And then the people fell on their faces and they worshiped. And the Korathites and the Korhites took and lift up, lifted up their hands and praised God. But the leader, first of all, led in worship as he bowed to the ground. And everyone else subsequently followed him. I love to worship with this young man because he understands he's not here to conduct worship. He's here to worship. In fact, everybody is here to worship. I notice how he gets into the singing and he claps his hands and he stands and he sings and prays the Lord for all of God's goodness because people are waiting on leaders in the church to stand and worship God, teachers and elders and deacons to give God praise and not simply be as a piece of um, the pillar or the furniture, etc. All of us come here to worship God. In verse number 20, Jehoshaphat says this. Have faith in God and he will uphold you and have faith in his prophets and he will make you successful. What happened to the fearful Jehoshaphat back in verse 3? Verse 3, when he heard that these three nations were planning a surprise attack, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Bible says he was alarmed. He was fearful. But here in verse 20, he has faith. It took him 17 verses from verse 3 to verse 20 to move from fear to faith. It's a process. Oh, I know what it's like to be afraid, but I tell you what you do. God will move you from verse 3 to verse 20, from fear to faith, from weakness to strength. If you will continue to keep your eyes on him, he will make you a stalwart example of what it means to have peace in the midst of a storm and to have tranquility in the midst of turbulence. 17 verses. How many verses is it going to take you? How many chapters if it's going to take you to move from fear to faith? He consults the singers in verse 21. And 
he takes and puts a strange, strange arrangement. Puts the choir in front of the army. The choir in front of the army? What? No. Put the army in front of the choir. No. Put the choir in front of the army. I thought we were going to fight. I told you the battle is not yours. It's God. No. We're going to have a concert. We are going to serenade the sovereign one. And we're going to learn this simple song. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for his steadfast love endure forever. That's all I want you to sing. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endure forever. And if you don't think that you can say that a number of times, then read Psalm 136 because every verse ends with his steadfast love endures forever. Just keep singing that over and over and over again. Because you know what God is waiting on? God is waiting on us to worship before he works. Worship before he works. Not you taking work and then worship. No. God wants you to worship before he even works. And in this text, they began to worship and then God works. For the Bible says, while they are singing, verse 22, when, not before, but when they began to sing, God set up ambushes. And great commentators of the Old Testament struggle with what that means. It's a mystery. In other words, when they began to sing, that's when God began to move. Not before. Some of us are waiting for deliverance. Some of us are waiting for an answer. Waiting for God to give you a breakthrough because you're experiencing a breakdown. When they began to sing. When they began to worship. When they began to exalt and rejoice in God. When they did that. Then. Because you can't have a then of God until you have a when when it comes to yourself. When. Then God began to set up ambushes and brought a great deal of confusion. Because the Ammonites and the Moabites ganged up on the Edomites and destroyed them. And then more confusion. The Ammonites and the Moabites got confused and committed mutual homicide. And all the children of Israel did was just to keep singing. Oh, give thanks to God for his steadfast love endures forever. And all they did was just to sing and watch. And when it was all over, they didn't have to lift up a sword. God had already won the battle. And now they would spend the next three days collecting all the valuables that were left. <laughs> and they called that valley the Valley of Baraka, which is the valley of joy. Never, never bring a God to the stage unless the problem is one that deserves a God to solve it. I want you to know that Jehoshaphat was a great king and he had a problem that he could not solve. Therefore, the battle was not his, but it was the Lord. But there is one who is a greater king than Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat comes out of the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 8, here is Jehoshaphat. He is born out of the redemptive roots of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus. And this is a great battle that is won, but there is one who must come to the stage now because there is a problem that no one can solve except him. His name is Jesus. 
It was the problem of how he was going to reinstate humanity back into the garden of paradise. Because there was a time when Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening. But because of sin, God had to evict them and put a security system in the form of angelic beings that took swirling swords to keep them from reentering. And the reason why he had to keep them from reentering is because they had sin and sin and God's holiness cannot coexist. But it took 42 generations for someone by the name of Jesus to finally come to the stage because no one could solve the problem except Jesus. And he came to do what no one else could do. Noah couldn't do it. Samuel nor David could do it. Sarah nor Deborah could do it. But Jesus himself came to do what no other one could do. Because what he did was to become what he was not. God took on flesh. He became sin, even though he did not know any sin. And uh, here is a God who was able to do what no other one could do. For Jesus himself stepped on the stage and there born in uh, the city of Bethlehem, raised in its obscurity and poverty. One who was willing to live a life of deficits that you and I might have abundance. And one who was sinless that was put on a cross to die one Friday. And he did die that Friday evening. No, he did not swoon. No, he did not have a comatose position. But no, he really died that Friday. But the good news of the story is that uh, he didn't stay dead. He died Friday evening and stayed dead all day Saturday and all night Saturday nights. But uh, early Sunday morning, he rose from the dead with all power in his hand. And he is the one who can solve your problem. And he is the one who will come back again one of these days when I shall see him look upon his face there to sing forever of his saving grace on the streets of glory let me lift my voice cares all past home at last ever to rejoice. I'm glad that he comes on the stage because there are problems that I can't solve, but he comes on the stage. There are situations that I can't free myself from, but he comes on the stage. There are positions that I cannot defeat, but he comes on the stage. And therefore, when he comes on the stage, I get off the stage and I say to him, have your way. Have your way. Have your way. Never bring a God to the stage unless the problem is one that deserves to be solved by a God. And I want you to know, as the angel will say to Abraham in Genesis 18 and 14, is there anything too 
hard for God. And the answer is, what is it? I didn't hear you. I didn't hear you. 